Hello, and welcome to I Am Dad podcast with your fatherhood authority, Kenneth Braswell. 30 minutes of wisdom, information, resources, and nuggets to help you on your fatherhood journey. Or maybe you're just curious and want to hear some real talk about fatherhood, family, and the minds of men. Well, guess what? We got you too. Sit back, grab your pad and pen, and maybe even bring a little something to sip on. Enjoy 30 straight minutes of fatherhood, family, and fun with the fatherhood authority. Kenneth Braswell. Welcome to I Am Dad Podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell. Thank you for joining us again here um, on this weekly podcast where we try to bring you the best in conversation, the best minds, the best innovation. And more importantly for me in this in this podcast, this continuing to grow in this space, um, and that is this element of passion, drive, and purpose for the individuals that I'm talking to. It's just not people that are figured out one day that this was a good thing to do or a good piece of work to get involved in. A lot of folks that I talk to have been um, driven into this work through life circumstances, and that's no different from my guest today, Mr. Omari Maynard. Um, I've heard about this brother, you know, years and, you know, it's not years and years, but years I've been hearing about him, had a chance to meet him. Um, in LA and then I believe in Washington, we was there for something else and um, just continue to hear his story and think his story is so important, but not only is the story important, but the subject matter itself about infant mortality, particularly um, as it affects black women. And as we listen to the stories of black men tell these stories, um, it's just important for people to understand that this is also part of the body of work of responsible fatherhood. Um, Amari is my homie. And so he was born in Brooklyn. He's an artist. He uses color, dimension, and texture exhibits, true, raw, and natural talent. Um, The evolution of artistry is evident in his work. His pieces tell stories that are thought-provoking, intellectually inspiring, and technically sound. Amari's life partner, Shimoni Gibson, transitioned in 2019 due to medical male tract medical malpractice um, after giving birth to their second child and in response Mari co-founded Aria. Am I saying that right, bro? Aria? Uh, Aria. Aria. Okay. Aria Foundation. Aria utilizes art, education, and advocacy to migrate the long-lasting impact of systemic racism and oppression on the sexual reproductive health and birth outcomes within the um, BIPOC communities. Omari, thank you so much, man, for coming on. How you doing this this morning? Man, I'm doing great, man. Thank you for having me. Um, see, you know, fatherhood is a is a beast. <laughs> it's a beast. <laughs> I um I haven't I haven't eaten yet. Uh, well, I was outside, so I was I've got these flowers that I was planting. And that's a whole nother conversation, but I've been on the flower game, like people, dudes is on like the sneaker game, man, trying to find, on the hunt for trying to find dope flowers. So I finally got them planted this morning, took my kids out because they wanted to go see their their friends, you know, and this is all before, you know, like I said, we started today, it's 10 o'clock now, I've been up in movement since about five, six, but you know, it's, it's par for the course. Yeah, I would help you out, bro, but I can't. You can't transport vegetation from um, from Africa to America because I was just in a botanical garden in Ghana, and there was all kinds of things over there, man. I could have brought you back some. You'd have had a dope garden, you know, things that was going right from the motherland. And I'm going back um, to Kenya, and so I'll be in Kenya in a few weeks. And if I can figure out how to get it to you, if if I don't get you anything else, get you some seeds. Um, that, yeah, man, that, listen, man, I'd be greatly appreciated, bro. I'd be the, I, nah, that's, that's amazing. That'd be amazing. Yeah, and I got to go to Ghana with you too, man. We got to set that up. Absolutely. Now nah, I'm going back next year. We'll talk about that offline so I can tell you uh, what we're going back for because some of your work would also be incredibly impactful um, there. And then I'm also got this chance in front of me to possibly go to Nigeria. Um, to do some literacy work with father and father engagement stuff in, in Nigeria as well. So we'll chat about that. Do me a favor and um, walk me through um, your journey. Uh, walk me through 
um, start where you want to start and end where you want to end because I think all of that is going to give me the meat for our conversation. I know where I want to go, but I want people to know you. I want them to know your story. Um, Omari has been on today. Um, he was covered by today's show. And so um, America knows the story, but now we want to bring it to you here on I Am Dad podcast. Omari, give us your story. Yeah, most definitely. So um, like you said, you know, my, my partner, my life partner, Shimani Gibson, she passed away October 6, 2019, and um, 13 days after she gave birth to our second child. And between those 13 days, you know, we were calling the hospital, let them know what was going on, telling them that she had shortness of breath. Um, shortness of breath it was hard for her to talk, hard for her to move, hard for her to walk up and down the steps. You know, these are all signs that you know, she could possibly have uh, pulmonary embolism or just blood clots moving through her body. And we even actually told him that, you know, the, the crazy part about our story is that our family has been rooted in the maternal health space for for decades. Mm-hmm. Shamani's mother, she's um, she's a social worker. She's an advocate. She's uh, um, she also has um, many different conferences that she holds. One is called the Motherhood Conference, where they get women together who have dealt with infant mortality, stillbirths, released pregnancies. So the community in itself in which we've already cultivated and created is essentially like um, community of midwives, you know, doulas, doctors, nurses, people who are practitioners, people who are in the healthcare system. So we have, and we had that, you know, community already to access and we were accessing them, you know, during these 13 days the hospital that we gave birth that we knew like we had a personal relationship with the head of um, the delivery and um, infant unit there. And we've given her the time telling her the symptoms and she was telling us, you know, Shimani just, she needs to just, excuse me, relax, lay up, you know, don't do too much. And you know, honestly, that was probably the worst advice that we could have got because if you, you know, are having blood clots move through your system, the last, Thing you want to do is be still because it gives them time to activate and move mm-hmm. you know you want to be moving around and um doing things to get them to you know release release the um the fluid so you know essentially that was her demise you know if we um everything was all good on october 5th we were all in the house chilling relaxing thankfully her mom her aunt her godmother we're over at the house with me and the kids as well. Um, but she was complaining. She's like, yo, I, I have sharp chest pains. I want to go to the hospital. And as I'm packing the bag, you know, her aunt and her mother just called me into the room, screaming hysterically. And, you know, Shimani goes into cardiac arrest right in the house. And um, called the ambulance, called the EMDs. Seemed like it took forever. But um, when they got there, you know, the first question they were asking us was, you know, was she on any drugs? Like, I remember the you know, EMT worker getting frustrated because he couldn't, she wasn't staying still for him to take her vitals. And I'm like, essentially, you know, this, she's fighting for her life, like literally fighting for her life. And you worried about her sitting still and being frustrated because she's not, you know? So, man, I want to say during that moment of time uh, like specialists came in another set of emt workers um the fire department and they all were asking the same questions you know not what our vitals are not how she's doing not let's get it to the closest hospital let's get it to a hospital that could be the most effective it was was she on any drugs is she taking any drugs let us know it's okay she she is she on any drugs and um you know and when we're talking about life or death situations, seconds, you know, they all matter. You know, we, she wasn't, she didn't get taken out the house until about, I want to say almost 20 minutes after she went into her first cardiac episode. Mm-hmm. And by the time, you know, she was at the hospital, the hospital that she went to, I was asking to get us to a different hospital. The closest hospital in my neighborhood has been divested from for years. You know, and then, so that's another separate conversation on the demographics and the infrastructure of Bed-Stuy itself, in which, you know, the property value and, and um, gentrification has created 
multi-million dollar homes and all types of, you know, coffee shops and residents that got to pay $2,500 for a studio apartment. But, you know, the school system is still trash. You know, the, um, the healthcare system, the hospitals in the area are still being divested from. They don't match, you know, and um, when we got to the hospital, they didn't have the they didn't have the unit. They didn't have the um, and they didn't have the tools to to treat blood clots properly. All they could do was give her blood thinners at that point, and and we just waited. And you know, honestly, at that point, even if she did come to and was able to breathe on her own so that we could get her to a hospital that could give her the help that she needed. She was she already you know, was pretty much as good as as brain dead. She already had, um, there wasn't still already enough oxygen going to her brain. And, um, you know, unfortunately, 12 hours later, she passed away. Mm. And, um, you know, that's the, that is what exactly what you were talking about, you know, to start off our podcast, like, essentially, now I do a lot of work, not even a lot of work, my life's mission at this point is to you know, raise awareness around maternal health, maternal mortality, maternal morbidity, infant mortality, infant morbidity, um, systemic racism, systemic racism, social injustice, healthcare reform, you know, all of these things, because essentially these are the things that are killing our, our women and, you know, destroying the black family amongst all the other hurdles that black people have to go through um, and deal with and, and, being you know and living in america yeah that was uh where i kind of wanted to go uh, we're going to talk about the advocacy work but i want to stay back in this space just for a moment because there's another aspect of this i want you to talk about but um if i didn't say in the beginning when i said that omari was my homie we're talking about homies from brooklyn new york and so when you talked about the divestment of hospitals i was actually born in jewish hospital up on Atlantic Avenue. I don't know if it's still there or not, but I was actually born um, in, I was born in that hospital. But as a kid growing up, you know, our neighborhood hospital was Kings County Hospital. And I was actually in the emergency room a couple of weeks ago for an asthmatic episode, which is why I used to always be in Kings County Hospital when I was a young kid. And I was having a conversation with the young lady and she was talking about how chaotic the emergency room was that I was in. And I'm sitting there looking around, I'm like, well, chaos, like you don't even understand what ER chaos looks like until you're in a hospital in Brooklyn, New York, particularly Kings County, where I grew up. I've been in that hospital and when I've had an asthmatic episode and walked by people with gun wounds, knives still stuck in their chest. And I was telling her about this one story when I was really young, they pushed me by this guy and he had a, um, a, a, a ax in his head and they hadn't taken the ax out. They just had the bandage around his head. And he and, yeah. he, and they're in a waiting room. They're not getting served, they're yeah. in the waiting room. That goes to tell you how much other bad stuff is going on behind the scenes that a dude with an ax in his head can't get served until people in front of them get served. So when you talk about that New York and most other, and a lot of other major urban centered hospitals in cities around the country, that's what we're describing. And people don't understand what you're actually describing because they're thinking about a hospital from the context of their rural community or private community and their organization and, and stuff that's going on there. So I want to kind of touch on that. But what I want you to talk about, Amari, a little bit is as you're going through all this stuff, because this is important, I think for people to hear, particularly for men to hear, like what is your mental state going through this? Because I can, I'm listening to you in parts of your story and there's moments where I feel like I would have been concerned. Then there's other moments where I would have been agitated and then other moments when I would have been annoyed and then other moments when I would have been outraged and other moments where I would have just fell apart. Talk to me about that roller coaster ride of you having to hold yourself together going through this thing for your wife. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I say this often, like during, well, one, during, during those, that 12-hour period where, you know, she first 
you know, first went into cardiac arrest until she essentially, you know, stopped breathing um, and transitioned. It was, uh, I mean, honestly, it was a shock, you know, and my emotional, like, if my emotional bandwidth was like this, after those 12 hours, it became this, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and, I mean, I remember, I remember, man, I remember when the EMT workers were trying to get her to, you know, sit still and I'm trying to talk to her and, you know, calm her down and, you know, it's going to be okay. We're here, you know, let me help you. And she's fighting and she's fighting and then she just stops fighting, you know, and then that moment, I remember wanting to say, yo, I don't think she's breathing, but I couldn't, the words couldn't come out of my mouth because I didn't want to bring that into reality. Mm. Oh, and oh, man. And I'm like looking at the EMT work and I'm like, do you see what's going on? And he's like, yeah. And then they start, you know, doing chest compressions and doing all the things. But um, at that moment, you know, I, I, it shit got real. It got real and it got real, really fast, you know, and um, I still, of course, had hope. I still, you know, wasn't thinking the worst, but um, I knew at that point, you know, it is like, this is a moment to moment thing and we, we got to get, I've got to be present mm -hmm. and not, you know, and not think about what could be coming. Cause if I, if I went into that route, it would have been, I would have lost it. You know, I wouldn't have been sane. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. So fast forward where we are in the ambulance, we're getting to the, the facility and I, like I said, this hospital's been divested from for years. Nobody, nobody really goes to this hospital because they already know what it is, you know, once you get there. And I just remember there being like 10, it felt like 10 doctors and nurses just surrounding her and everybody trying to input and, and you know, impart their opinion on what's going on and what they should do and what needs to happen and what has to happen first. And, we can't do this if we do that or we can't do that unless we do this and i remember one lady saying yo she is having a pulmonary embolism we need to do x y and z and everybody all the other doctors still trying to say or do whatever they needed to do but i really felt like and it resonated with me because i felt like like I'm, I'm a very big proponent on there being too many cooks in the kitchen sometimes, you know? And um, I just feel like if we were in a different situation, she still could po have possibly been here if there were, were, there were less doctors trying to tell, tell people what was needed, what was needed to, to save my, my partner's life. Um, and essentially, eventually, they were able to, of course, you know, diagnose her and let and figure out what the next steps were. Um, but at that point, it was too late. And then, you know, it's another interesting story. So I was, you know, before I, I quit my job, I quit my job. I didn't quit my job. I fired my job. Honestly, I fired my job in 2020. Um, I was a teacher. I was teaching algebra and geometry. And um, I was talking to one of the nurses at the hospital that Shamani ended up giving birth in. I'm talking to her, you know, I'm telling her what I did. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a teacher. I teach at Midwood High School. And she's like, oh, yeah, my son goes to Midwood. It's mm -hmm. like, oh, well, I teach geometry. Oh, my son's taking geometry. Turns out my her son was in my class during that time. Mm. You know, so... Me and her ended up kind of building and having a relationship. And this was what we were at. We had our, we had Kari at Woodhall. Um, we had Kari at Woodhall Hospital. 
we took Shimani to Interfaith, which is on Atlantic as well. And, and um, we took her to Interfaith. And again, doctors, nurses arguing, eventually they, you know, diagnose her. And I'm sitting in the chair, I'm like trying to figure it out. And I look up and, you know, the same nurse who's, son I taught also had shifts at interfaith and was at interfaith and when I saw her you know like I just felt relief and knowing that somebody knew my, our family and I felt like could help because they were um we had an invested relationship you know and I just remember going to see her like seeing her and just hugging her and breaking down and and you know, her trying to reassure me that everything was going to be okay and they were going to do the best that they could and she wasn't going to go anywhere and, you know, all the things, man. And, you know, that helped. Um, but it was just fucked up to have to even just be in that, you know, be in that type of situation. And, you know, from that point, eventually they got her to a room and, you know, the we ended up taking over the hospital. I mean, there had to be at least 30, 40 people at the hospital, honestly, mm. you know, during that time. Mm. We were in different rooms. We were, you know, in her room, we were in the hallway, you know, we were, we, and I was, you know, by her side. And at that point I felt hopeless, Real, I mean, not hopeless, helpless. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't, I didn't have any expertise to provide I couldn't, you know, fucking give her my heart and, you know, keep it pumping. Like, I couldn't do anything. All I could do was just be present and be there and, and sit with her and be by her side. And, you know, that's what I did. And, you know, I mean, during this time period, there's also things happening. Like, there, you know, sometimes she's, you know, breathing fine and other times she's going in and it got to you know, give her chest compressions and put it back on the ventilator. So, you know, it's a lot of, it was a lot of strain and stress. And, um, but more than anything, it was, it was reality. And it was me learning and figuring out in real time how to deal with this new reality. And, and I just remember like, lastly, like her, her cousin is a, is a, is also a doctor. And she was actually the first person to get to the hospital after I did. So she was able to talk to them and, you know, in the language that they understood and give us all the terms and all the, you know, technical things and all of that stuff. So we knew exactly what was going on and she knew exactly what to ask and figure that and all that stuff. And I remember just, you know, we're about eight hours in at that point. And I just remember just asking her like, you know, like how is it realistic that she's gonna live? Hmm. You know, and she was like, I don't think so. Wow. You know, you know, we're gonna pray. And you know, at that at that moment it was all right, I gotta prepare myself for the worst. And you know, how do I do that? You know? yeah. 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 The reason I wanted to, you know, I think it's important to slow the story down sometimes because I can, you know, you can do these podcasts and kind of skip through, skip through and get to like all things. But for me knowing what you're trying to do on the advocacy side and know what I'm trying to do on a program delivery service side, like so often we can think that the stuff that we're doing is just statistical. Like we're doing it because there's a statistic that says that this is an issue, right? Yeah. This is more than a statistic, right? This is life. This is family. This is people, right? And so when people don't know the story of what you're trying to do, they can gloss over the importance of paying attention to it. And that's why I want to slow this down because I need people to sit in the story. Um, I interviewed Ayala Van Zandt. Um, a few years ago when I did my first documentary, Spit and Anger, um, about uh, fatherlessness, particularly in black men and boys. And she said something to me, and it was like really weird when she said it, but I understood what she was trying to say. And she said, sometimes you got to sit in the hurt. 
right? Sometimes you got to sit in the hurt and marinate in it so that you fully and clearly understand what you're in the midst of. And she said, if more people would sit in the hurt as opposed to trying to heal so fast, they would actually heal faster if they allowed themselves to be absorbed by the circumstance that they were that they were in. Now, this was your second child with your um, life partner. Did you know anything or were you aware that you had to be conscious about the issues as it surrounds black women and birth prior to that? Or was this like, whoa, what's going on? Like, I didn't know that I should have been mindful about this. No, like I said, you know, earlier, the, the crazy part is, is that, you know, Shimani's family has been in this, you know, the darker side of maternal health, you know, and wrestling with it for for decades. And so before Shimani passed, we had created a, a company called Artful Living. And Artful Living, it was a lifestyle brand, essentially, but we would do like sipping paints, murals, work with um, New York City parks, uh, all types of type of events to bring people together and do use different artistic modalities to create community essentially. You know, and one of the um, things that we used to do for Shawnee's mother with conference work was create artwork around um, birthing, around um, healthcare issues and, and things of that nature. So I was privy to information. I, I've, I've been in those spaces. I've heard the stories of women going through stillbirths or releasing pregnancies or, you know, having to deliver, excuse me, a baby who's not alive, you know, having to get a C-section for a baby who's not alive, having to deal with the traumas that go with, you know, going into, um, you know, get into your third trimester and not being able to, you know, um, having to release your child through miscarriage, you know, so we, I've heard the stories, I've, I, I knew the people, you know, and, but I never thought that I would be on the other side of the coin, you know, so it's like, I wasn't surprised by what was happening per se, but I was surprised that it was happening to us just because of the fact that we were invested and rooted in, in the same type of community, mm -hmm. you know, so we knew, again, we knew the signs, we knew the symptoms, we knew the language, we knew the people to talk to, we had the birth plan, we had a midwife, we had a doula for both of our children, you know, we, I was at all of the OB visits, you know, everything was, I, we did essentially everything that we could to make sure that we were covered. Um, and still, you know, when we really come down to it, you know, systemic racism is a beast, man, and no, yeah. nobody is safe, you know, and that's just the, the honest truth. So let's, let's, let's educate people now because, you know, we, we now know the story. Um, and we know how pervasive this um, issue of black maternal mortality is. Frame the issue for us. What is the issue? What should we have front of mind when we're thinking about this issue of black maternal um, mortality? Yeah, so, um, I mean, the numbers, the numbers speak for themselves. So the numbers are essentially uh, seven to 900 women pass away every year due to maternal health complications. And, you know, when we talk about maternal mortality, you know, it's very prevalent, but honestly, maternal morbidity, the near-death experiences, you can almost, you know, three to five X that, you know, for women who are, um, you know, bringing new life into the world. 80% uh, of these deaths are preventable. Um, and 85% of these you know, maternal mortality, maternal morbidity complications come from due to cesarean sections, cesarean um, sections, C-sections. And C-sections, the numbers for C-sections are crazy. 85% uh, of C-sections are not even needed, you know. So we talk about C-sections and, and the how commonplace it is for women to get it nowadays. We don't always realize or understand that it's major surgery. You know, it's, it's major surgery that that's happening to women who can easily pass 
you know, give their children, pass their children through the vaginal canal and, and you know, give birth naturally. But because, you know, we're dealing with the healthcare system and the business of healthcare, when we talk about the numbers, it takes about 45 minutes to have a C-section as opposed to eight to 12 hours to have a vaginal birth. Um, a vaginal birth, I think, is roughly around twelve to $15,000 that a hospital receives as opposed to a as opposed to a cesarean section was about twenty two to thirty thousand dollars that a hospital will receive. So now we're talking about double the double the the payment and freaking <laughs> more than half of the time, you know, forty five minutes and you can schedule it and you can plan it into and integrate it into the day. you know so when we talk about, when we look at those numbers, you know, it's essentially the incentivization to practice on black and brown bodies specifically. And um, the amount of money that passes through these hospitals in order to do them makes the numbers, makes it make, to me, makes it more um, clear why there are these, these issues are so prevalent. There's just so much money. And then once you have a C-section, 50%, probably even more than that, your child is probably going to have to go to NICU for some reason, right? And then when we talk about the NICU, if you see, if a child stays in the NICU for a day, that's $45,000, right? So if you have a child who's in the NICU for a week, that's a million-dollar baby right there. And that's what they call them, you know, if they're in there for a week. So um, it's... Is there's there's money, there's tons of money, and unfortunately, you know, they are cutting our weapon open that and and making it so commonplace that our community thinks that C-sections is just the way to go, or birthing at a hospital is really the only option, you know. But that's not the case. And honestly, if we, you know, created systems and where midwifery care, where there's the birthing team that's available where doula care is something that is an active part of the delivery process, then these numbers would be way better than, than what they are. Um, the United States is one of the worst countries to have a baby in, the worst industrialized countries to have a baby in, in the world. Um, I want to say we rank like 26th when it comes to uh, comes to our maternal mortality uh, statistics compared to other countries. And when we look at all the other countries who are doing their thing, who, who's, you know, maternal mortality issues are, you know, in the less than, you know, one, two, three, four, five percentiles, they have midwifery care and doulaship care integrated into every hospital. So when you go in there, you have somebody other than a doctor saying, hey, let me cut you open so we get this baby out so I could rinse and repeat it so I could be out of here by four o'clock to get my tea time, you know, and, and play golf. You know, there's a, a team of people who are advocating there specifically and only for the birthing parent um, and then also the birthing partner to make sure that one, the child here makes it safely um, and as less invasive as possible. And then two, that, you know, the mother is also um, covered and supported not only through the prenatal and delivery process, but also postpartum. After they have their child, they're still um, provided support so that they are, you know, fortified the way they need to be in order to keep the family unit together. Mm -hmm. And so now after this, um... Um, circumstance, you find yourself in the place that you are now. And it's crazy as you were talking, I was thinking about the way that I was going to ask this question and the way that I was going to ask, ask the question is really contradictory to what I talk about when I use this term. And I was going to say, you find yourself now being a single father. And that's actually the wrong terminology because and I talk about this often when I talk to fathers and moms about parenting, and particularly this whole notion of single moms, where the term single mom is a term that denotes marital status, not parenting status. Mm -hmm. For every single mom, there is a single dad if you're not married. And let me say that again. For 
every single mom there is a single dad but we've given the term single mom a definition that oftentimes means she's not receiving any help from dad right it's not the same notion and i was going to say to you you find yourself a single dad but you weren't married and what that means in the true literal meaning of the term you've always been a single dad and she's always been a single mom because it denotes marital status but in my mind i re-termed it in my head and i said to myself but now he has become a single parent right Mm -hmm. now you have become a single parent because there is now not another parent to help you be a parent to your children talk to me about that transition now being a father that is now a single parent having to raise two children um, in the middle of having to grieve for your partner but having to have to having to be there for your children and also transitioning transition your younger child and now your next child into a life not knowing and being able to have access to their mom yeah yeah um it's been Honest, so there's a there's a there's <laughs> there's a lot that's going through my mind. Um, I mean, one, especially if you are in a, a loving relationship, you never think like the idea of your partner not supporting you in this process or just supporting you through life, not even this process, supporting you through life. It was not, it wasn't never an option. Um, and again, it, Shimani wasn't sick. You know, she wasn't sick. She wasn't, um, you know, there weren't ailments to where it was like, oh man, you know, she's slowly deteriorating. You know, she was, it was literally here today, going tomorrow, you know, and that shift, um, it brought about so much emotion. So the first thing I think about, and I'm gonna tell you, like I'm just super blessed, and I'm gonna tell you and I'm explain why. I just even though I've had to deal with loss and grief and this tragedy, you know, and in the situation that I've been in, um, and I'm, I'm gonna bring it back to what um, Ayala said, and being able to sit in the sit in the pain and sit in the sadness. Um, after Shimani passed, I, you know, my family, my community, my, my children's daycare, like my, my staff at my school, strangers, like everybody, you know, everybody showed up, you know, everybody was present. Everybody made sure that I was covered, you know, thankfully, thankfully the shift happened with, um, paternal leave for the New York City Department of Education, which provided me paternal leave for about two months after, you know, we had our child. So I was able to be home for those first two months and still get paid. But, you know, to your point, um, I wasn't able to father. I wasn't able to, I wasn't even able to be with myself fully that that those first couple of weeks first couple of months i didn't i didn't know what the hell was going on like i'm still in shock and as time is passing i'm realizing what's actually what my new reality is you know and during that time um thankfully shamani's mother her sister her brother um, they all ended up you know staying at the house for with me for about a good two months and you know just helping out and you know my family side coming in every once in a while and you know fifth friends coming over and helping out cleaning up and making sure there's food in the fridge and i was essentially i was in my basement i was in my basement um by myself painting uh after shamani passed shawnee and i decided to create an event called aftershock and the event was going to happen on december 19th which is shamani's birthday and shamani passed on september 6th we ended up having to bury her on our excuse me she passed on october 11th october 6th 
we ended up having to bury her on October 11th, which is my birthday. And when we had to bury her, um, it shifted my, my understanding of what grief, what life is, what community is. I mean, at her funeral, there had to be five, 600 people at least. Like it was capacity, capacity, maybe even a thousand. And we were streaming it online. So they were like, I mean, there were thousands of people who were in support of us. And, and I remember singing everybody at the funeral, singing happy birthday to me. Um, and we had performance, we had poets, we had people come because she was also active. She was, she graduated from LaGuardia. She was a dancer, you know, so like her community in itself were performance art people, you know, dancers, poets, rappers, all types of dope, you know, individuals. So, you know, it was a reflection of her, of her homegoing ceremony was, it was just that it was a celebration, you know, and um, you know, at that moment, I really realized, like, you know, how much love and support I, I have. But I didn't realize how potent and powerful that was. Um, so I was able to, again, so fast forward a little bit, I, I couldn't deal. I couldn't deal. All I could do was paint. And at that time, I didn't realize how therapeutic and important painting was for me. Before that, Again, we had our organization, we had our companies. We were doing art and all of that all the time, you know. But when it came down to it, and I was stripped to my stripped to my bare bones, you know, and I I connected with painting and it really allowed me to do a couple of things. It allowed me to be outside of my head mentally. So I I wasn't creating toxic thoughts based off of my new reality. Um, it made me hyper-focused on something else that wasn't at, that was outside of my reality as well. So like I'm concentrating hyper-focused, hyper-focused on, on my brushstroke, right? How I'm blending the paint, what I'm creating, what it's looking like, how it's coming out, you know? And it, it gave me, thirdly, it gave me an opportunity to take this low vibrational, dark energy, this navigating the space of this now emotional bandwidth where I'm like this at and was this when had to eventually navigate and learn all the nuances that got me from here to here. And that's what art did. That's what time to reflect and think did for me. And um, I was able to really process and figure out what my new life was going to be. And it's so important. And we spoke about this earlier that, you know, we don't get a chance to grieve as black people. We don't get a chance to think because when I speak to fathers now who've lost their partner, they're like, yo, I got to go back to work next week. And it's just, I lost, I lost my financial, I lost you know, one, I might not have parental leave like you did. And then even outside of my parental leave, I still was able to take, had to take, I had to take six more months with unpaid because I just wasn't mentally ready, you know, to, to be in the everyday roles of life. And I had to then support my children. But there's men who lose, financially lose that other half of their income don't necessarily have the, the luxuries that I was afforded and have to go back to work, you know? So they don't even have a chance to process. And I think that's huge, you know? And even if you wanted to sit and figure out and sit in the sadness, most people just don't have, don't have that luxury to do so, you know? And, you know, thankfully, like, you know, again, that's why I'm saying, like, I'm just so thankful for my grief and my, um, just thankful for my parents, you know, and my ancestors and my lineage and, you know, my community because, um, you know, it, it afforded me luxuries that other men just don't have, other partners that just don't have. And that is to really process and, and, and figure out what's the importance of grief and navigating these dark places. And I was navigating dark places that I would have never went to if 
I had to because I'm always so used to everybody, so used to having the lights turned on and able to see everything around them and what's behind them and what's on the side of them. And then when you're in this dark space and you're moving, you don't know what's next to you. You don't know what's in front of you. But when that light started coming on, it put me in a whole new environment and gave me thousands upon thousands of new opportunities. You know, and that's kind of where... Uh, the Aria Foundation got birthed, not kind of, that's where the Aria Foundation got birthed of, out of. That is where I found my new transition in life. Um, walking new- right into, you're walking right into where we were going, I was going to say. So out of all of that, you walk into this foundation. Um, talk to me about the foundation and talk to me about the work. Yeah, so um, the Aria Foundation, it, it stands for the Advancement of Reproductive Innovation through artistry and healing. And um, the incubus of the foundation was essentially that first aftershock event. So that first aftershock event, we had performing art, we had visual art, we had panel discussion, we had dance, we had opening ritual, we had you know um, closing ritual. Um, giving thanks to the ancestors, all of these things that um, created the aftershock events of what which we do every year now through our foundation. But uh, we sent the um, invite online, IG, social media, so people can come. A producer got wind of what we were doing. Her name was, was is Paula um, Izel. She asked if she can come to our event and film, you know, because she wants to do a documentary on maternal health. So we were like, yeah, come by, come film. And she came and she filmed and she was blown away by what we did and what we created. And, you know, she asked if she could follow our family. And we said yes, you know, and through that process from 2000 and December 19th, 2019, to about 2021, you know, they followed our family and essentially created the film Aftershock. And the reason why I bring up Aftershock because it is a it is a manifestation of what the RF Foundation really stands for. You know, we really want to create pathways using art modalities in order to to entertain educate, we call it edutainment, right? And provide spaces where people are, through the arts, are learning about maternal health, maternal mortality, social equity, birth equity, social justice issues, and finding other avenues and ways to bring more people into the fold so that they know what the issues are, they know what they're up against, they know how to support each other through you know, art in itself, and then also just through the information that we provide because of our art, our, our different artistic modalities. Um, and that's what we do, you know, that's what the ARIA Foundation is. So now we do a lot of panel discussions around Aftershock and, you know, what we're doing present day, the importance of Aftershock, uh, the importance of and how it, it um, resonates with specific communities all around this country. And um, we also have a program called the um, Postpartum Awareness Week. Postpartum Awareness Week, we're actually enacting it May 7th to 13th. This will be the first one that we're doing. And it's a seven, excuse me, six day virtual series that we're talking about all things postpartum, you know, and how it affects the mother, the child, the father, the family, the community, and all um, that encompasses that. Uh, we also have a, um, an event called Speak, Move, Change. Speak, Move, Change is, was started by three grandmothers who have lost their partners and Shawnee be included in, in that and providing information to the community about how to speak up about these issues, how to move and activate themselves around these social justice issues and what happens when you move and activate and how you can change the, the structures and dynamics of which we live in today. Um, I have a group called the Luxor Collective. The Luxor Collective is a men's group that gets together every other week on Thursdays. And we talk about all things that um, men essentially have to deal with. The group was started 
the group was started because I wanted to provide a space for men who um, suffered loss the same way that I did. But what I've quickly found out was that, you know, the group needed to be for men who are just dealing with traumas and just being black in America and all the things that come with that. So, you know, we talk about different topics every other week, but it essentially it is made to recreate what brotherhood looks like, recreate what um, fatherhood looks like, and really start activating our minds collectively so that we can be powerful, as powerful as we can be as individuals. Um, the Luxor Collective was named after the Luxor Temple, which is a temple in in Egypt. And if we know about the temples and the pyramids and just, you know, mathematics and Africa in itself, it is the birthplace of mathematics. And every all the temples, people still don't know how they were made, how they created. You know, they are geometrically, mathematically sound. Everything is perfect. Um, but with the Luxor Collective, excuse me, with the Luxor Temple, the corridors are at an angle. The floors are... Um, you know, not up to um, not up to mathematic perfection. Um, you know, there's there's lines, shapes, angles that are just off. But if you look at it at a micro level, but on the macro level, you know, if we look at the entire temple in itself, it represents a man in motion. And you know, that's essentially what the Luxor Collective is. It is all of us as individuals with all our imperfections, all our griefs, all our traumas, all our heavy things, all the great things also that we have to, you know, live with as individuals. When we get together, we are men moving in one accord in motion and it creates a perfect structure. Um, and lastly, uh, I even want to say lastly, there's a couple other things that we're doing, but I'm working on writing a children's book as well. You know, what we want to do with the ARIA Foundation is be able to provide information about these social justice issues from you know, toddler to, you know, elder. And we want to make sure we're covering all the gamuts between that. So with the, um, with my children's book, it is essentially how we create and recreate our relationships with part people who've passed away, who were in our lives and how we can use our altars um, as a conduit for communication with them and then use all the, you know, the life lessons that they've taught us while they were here um, to help navigate us, to help us navigate on this earth plane in, in present time. So it's a story of my children and myself just navigating life on a day-to-day -day basis, but how we always reflect on the messages that um, their mother, my life partner gave us and how we use those messages every day to just be you know, and and um, and navigate this this world, and still co-create, uh, um, and co-create a relationship with each other, and co-parent essentially. You know, but I'm just here upside, and she's co-parenting, helping me. You know, mm -hmm. on the ancestral plane. Nice, so. nice. Um, I don't think we mentioned your children's names. I want to invoke their names into the spirit. So I need you to just, what are their names? Most definitely. Uh, my son's name is Kari, Kari Nal Kojo. And uh, my daughter's name is Anari, Anari Naja Abina. Nice. Okay. Listen, um, man, God bless you, bro. Um, I am proud of you, man. This is, um, you represent black men um, in a way that we need to elevate these stories and these conversations so that people really know who we are, right? I don't think people know who we are. And so um, everything you touch, man, uh, is blessed and will be blessed. And so just keep touching, just keep touching, keep touching, keep touching. Um, let people know how they could get in touch with you, how they could possibly see the documentary, because I haven't seen it, I want to see it. And so I need to get my hands on seeing it. I actually have this idea, bro. Uh, we, Fathers Incorporated, Fathers Incorporated celebrates our 20th anniversary in 2024. So I got this idea for all of these kind of things I want to do in 2024 that I haven't done before. And one of the things I want to do is a, a fatherhood film festival and mm -hmm. here in Atlanta. 
and I want to do it really big. And I want to like I want to bring. Um, there's several brothers such as yourself that I know that have done powerful, powerful documentaries that have not been given um, the exposure for the subject matter that they should have. And I'm like, I, my my goal is to, and I don't know how this is going to happen, is to get to Tyler Perry to see if I can get him to sponsor a fatherhood film festival in Atlanta and bring films with deep, deep subject matter and create somewhat of a hybrid film festival conference, right, around social justice issues and issues as it relates to family and parenting and fatherhood and relationships and black men and black women, but having this anchor of fatherhood be the theme to everything that we're talking about. So you will be hearing from me about that. I have to pull you in on that conversation so that we can make that happen. But tell people how they can get in touch with you and how they could possibly see the documentary. Most definitely. So the documentary is everybody's got full access for, on it for it. If you have Hulu, you can watch the documentary. The documentary is on Hulu. Um, it's streaming on Hulu. It's been on Hulu since I want to say July, July of last year. Um, so just type in Aftershock. It'll come up. You know, it's... Um, and it's, a, it's an awesome piece of art. It's an awesome piece of art. We were nominated for the best documentary for Sundance in 2022. And not nominated, actually, we won. Excuse me. You got to rephrase that. We That's won right. The best that right. <laughs> we won the best documentary for Sundance in 2022. And we also um, are nominated for a Peabody Award this year. So uh, uh, got our fingers crossed that we'll, we'll be able to be one of those winners um, but find it on Hulu. You can find me on Instagram. My Instagram, my personal Instagram is M underscore U underscore Z. Um, that's Muzz. Um, my conf, my foundation's uh, Instagram is the Aria Foundation. Um, you can also go to our website, which is also the ariafoundation.org. And, um, you know, check us out. Check us out. We are we're out here. We're doing the work. We're, you know, always present and always willing to come to your city and, and share our, um, you know, share share what we're doing as a, as an organization to help you know eradicate maternal health, maternal morbidity. Yeah, Amari, thank you so much, man. We are now connected in spirit and by work and by passion and by calling. I'm sure we're going together, we'll change, we'll impact and change the world in a way um, that people won't be able to measure. And so um, thank you so much for, you know, being in my environment, being in my circle and being in my spirit. I'm going to carry your story and you with me everywhere I go. And so we also want to thank all of our I Am Dad podcast listeners continue to just, you know, support um, all of the guests that we have on this show. And more specifically, uh, put the work in, call a brother, email a brother. How can I help? What can I do? How can I share my story with you? How can we elevate this conversation? Uh, what can we do um, to really help? uplift and empower our families for the sake of the well-being of our children like what can we do um and it starts with very small things and so it doesn't have to be big 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 what can i do write a blog send you five dollars can i come to your event can i elevate your stuff and amplify your stuff on social media do something right just don't you know, ooh-ah, I hate those kind of people. It's like, I don't need your ooh-ah. Ooh-ahs do nothing for me. Like, do you, I need something tangible. Um, it's nice that you say ooh-ah, don't get me wrong, but that can't be the sum total of how you can contribute to and support people in their efforts. So thank you, I Am Dad podcast listeners, for all you do and all you engage in as a result of the people that you hear um, on this podcast. Um, until next Sunday. Um, God bless you and have a absolutely tremendously blessed week. See you then. Take care. Have a good one. Thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us. You've been listening to I Am Dad podcast. We hope that you have been informed, encouraged you to think, or even inspired your heart for the love of dads. 
The conversation does not end here. Come back and join us next week. Same time, same place. Or you can continue the dialogue on our I Am Dad Facebook page. We also invite you to listen to past episodes, learn more about us, and keep up with special activities by visiting IamDadPodcast.com. That's IamDadPodcast.com. Until next time, I leave you with this reminder of manhood from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Because of this reminder, I will always understand that I am dad, period.